Father, for those families in Florida who are suffering, first for the patients, the ones who were shot, that are still recovering, we had to ask that you would reach in with your hand, your healing hand, and completely heal them with no side effects whatsoever, Lord. We know that you can do this. You created the entire universe just by speaking it into existence. And so we would pray that you would heal those who are still recovering. And for the families who are suffering and the rage and the anger that they have, Lord, we understand that. We do not condemn in the midst of that. And the suffering is great. And we pray that you would relieve that suffering in some way, reach out and touch them and have them know that you are the God of all comfort as well. And Father, bring people into their lives that can shed some light or some wisdom and, and just be of comfort to those who are grieving grievously, Lord. And we pray also for our leaders uh, that would make decisions in the aftermath of this and the Las Vegas shooting and the other school shootings and just all these shootings that are taking place. We ask that you would give them incredible insight and wisdom to do what is right in your eyes, not what seems good to us. For we understand from your word there is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end thereof is destruction. Help us, Lord, not to go down that path, but help us to think lucidly with clarity and, again, give us understanding. And, Father, for the sake of us here, help us to count our blessings. Help us to rely on your spirit that we might understand your word, that it would keep us on the straight and narrow. We give you thanks for your mercy towards us, not judging us according to our sins, but still showing us your grace, your favor, which is unmerited. And knowing that you are such a loving God, we will trust in you for this. And we bow ourselves in our hearts to you in all humility as we make these requests. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we are going through the Gospel of Matthew and we are experiencing for lack of a better phrase, the biography of Jesus at this point. We, are, we have dealt with the birth of Jesus, his lineage, his ancestry, the announcement, the recognition of his arrival. We had the angels, the magi, and we had John the Baptist. Then we will see the baptism of Jesus, his initiation into temptation. We will be seeing that. The place he lived and where he ministered, the selection of his first disciples, and the type and scope of his ministry. We're, we're getting the biography. If you read any biography at all, it will start out like that. Sometimes an autobiography starts out like that. Uh, I was um, listening to a biography just last week, and it started out like that. It was on Churchill. And it started out where he was born and what he did and what he started to accomplish in his early life and where he went and when he got voted in. It's, and that's what is happening here in the Gospel of Matthew. And we have to keep in mind also that Matthew is writing to the Jews. And when he says the phrase, and I said this in the beginning, when he says the phrase, the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God, and they are both the same, but when he says the kingdom of heaven, it is because the Jews did not like to speak the name of God because they felt it was holy. 
too holy to speak. And so that's why he would use the kingdom of heaven. He is trying to reach the Jews. But it's not only for the Jews, it is also for us as well. I have already covered the fear of wrath and the fruit in keeping with repentance. But John the Baptist, in these verses here, he's warning of the coming judgment, which is there. And remember, he turned towards the uh, Pharisees who had shown up, the leaders of the Jews. And he said, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And he's not quite done with them in this passage. And as I touched on last week in verses 9 through 10, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. They were trusting in the fact that they were just following the decrees, the dictates of the law, and the fact that they were from Abraham. They were actually his great, several generations removed, grandchildren. And they thought that that is what entitled them to get to heaven, to be one with God, so to speak. But Jesus comes along after John, and John condemns them. Like, don't think you can trust in Abraham, because that's why you think you're going to get to heaven. Then he goes on in verse 10, and he says, The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, as you read this, John is not talking about cutting down a tree. He is also not talking about harvesting. But the person who does not dig into the scripture would look at this and say, John the Baptist is talking about cutting down a tree, just like George Washington chopped down the cherry tree. That's what he's talking about. And, you know, it's harvesting wheat. You know what harvesting wheat is? That's what he's talking about. And he's not talking about those things at all. To give you an idea how you have to parse the scriptures, how you have to dissect it. There is so much here. It's probably going to take me two weeks to get through it. There's so much that's packed in here. And you might say, well, can't we just get through the book? I would rather have you have the quality of the scriptures that are here than just rush through it and miss some of these important points. And it's easy to do. Now, before I became a Christian, I was searching for God. And I happened to run across this book, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Now, if you guys remember that book, I read that book and I was just inspired. And then the one that came after that was Illusions. And it was about this reluctant Messiah that was there. The theology of it is completely wrong and bankrupt. I just want to tell you that from right up front. But it's kind of like the Dan Brown novels, you know, where Mary Magdalene, she is uh, really the descendant or she married Jesus and they had children and there's a generation that comes after that. That was part of the Dan Brown movies that were out there. And the theology is completely wrong, but I read the book and the book is just captivating. It just draws you in. You go, well, I sat down in three days. I had finished this thick book. I just could not put it down. I was reading it about eight hours a day, nine hours a day. Well, I read this Jonathan Livingston Seagull, and I gave it to my brother. I, I said, it's so inspiring. You've got to read this. And so he took it. He read it. And I go, what do you think? What's it about? And he goes, stupid Seagull. 
It's not about a seagull at all, but the imagery, the allegory that is used there is meant to communicate a truth. Now, it has to do with reincarnation and all that, but the way that the book was written, you just go, man, I just feel so exhilarated. And Illusions, the one that came after that, I just felt so exhilarated. And Dan Brown's book, I read that, and I feel, give me another one. I want to read another book like that. And when you read passages like this, you can say, well, there's really nothing here. It's just cutting down a tree and it's harvesting. I get he was dealing with a, an agrarian society and they understood what it was to cut down a tree and to harvest stuff, but it doesn't really mean much to me until you start digging in what it actually means. Now, I will be skipping around in, these, in this section of verses here, but the things that we're dealing with here, we have the axe and we have the tree and we have the winnowing fork and we have the threshing floor and the wheat and the chaff and the baptism for repentance and the baptism with the Holy Spirit and the baptism with fire. You know, what are these things talking about? If I think of the baptism of fire, what that's supposed to mean, I'm getting torched, you know, and and is that what it means? I'm going to be baptized by literal fire and I'm going to be burned up. I'm going to be consumed. Is that what that means? And what about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Talk about a subject that has been misunderstood through the ages. That is a prime example. And John says, he will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. Well, who's he talking about? Is he talking about the Jews? Is he talking about those who would come after the Jews? I mean, what's the explanation of all that? What's this threshing floor? And what is threshing? And what is winnowing and harvesting wheat? And what do all of these things mean? And so we have to pay attention to these passages and what they state. But what is the underlying imagery that is used? We want to make sure we don't misunderstand what God is trying to communicate to us. And so when it comes to the process of harvesting wheat, before we do that, I would like you to turn over to Luke chapter 8. Or excuse me, Luke chapter 3. The same same story is communicated in Luke chapter 3, and we have more context. You cannot interpret something in scripture without the proper context and you need to gather all the information from the text that you can possibly glean because there's kind of a a disjoiner in there like a non sequitur as he goes from the axes at the tree and then he talks about the um, going back in excuse me, Matthew chapter 3, where he says, I will baptize you with water for repentance. And then he goes on to the winnowing fork. And it just doesn't really flow real well in there. So we want to get some context for this. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, we're going to read down to, looks like verse 18. It says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, he says something here to have the crowd, the tax collectors, and the soldiers ask him questions as a result of the axe being at the tree. They understood something. And we want to find out what that is. He goes on to say, what should we do then? The crowd asked, and he gives this change of behavior. He says, John answered, the man who has two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. The tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teachers, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, 
he told them. So another change in behavior that he's telling these tax collectors. And the soldiers, he gives them this change of behavior. In verse 14, then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs and whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So that is giving us context. They think he's the Messiah. And he's going, no, 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 I'm not. I just baptized for repentance, but there's another coming after me. He will baptize you differently. Then he goes on to say, he gives more information about him. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. So it has more of a flow where this winnowing fork is talking about the one who holds it, which is the Messiah, who will baptize with fire, and right before this, the axe is at the tree. So it it flows a little bit better in this section of Scripture. And so we want to look at these elements. And if we start with the axe and we start with the tree, you know, the root, I'm just going to tell you what this first one is in the interest of time. The root is Abraham. The branches that come up from Abraham, if you had the trunks coming up there, it would more than likely be the leaders of the Jews. And the small branches that come off and all the leaves, that would be the Jewish nation. That's what that would be. And so John says, the axe is already at the tree. The people would have understood at that time. He's talking about us. That there's judgment to come. And this stuff is going to be burnt up. And then the crowd asks, well, should, what, what should we do? They get confused. And the soldiers, what should we do? And the tax collectors, well, what should we do then? <clears throat> they were convicted in their heart when he said, judgment is coming. And he used some imagery here to explain it to them. And they immediately got it. But we didn't. Right? Because in our context, we have no idea that it's really Abraham. That's where God started everything. Abraham is the most widely known name in all of the world, more than Jesus, more than Trump, more than anybody. It is because he is the one who is the head of three world religions, the monotheistic religions, Islam, the Jews, and the Christians. Everybody knows Abraham. They would have understood in that context and their history setting and their culture. He was talking about Abraham and they were the ones that sprouted from Abraham and he's cutting down the tree. And so they're fearful that this judgment is coming. Well, what else here? You have the winnowing fork, you have the threshing floor, you have the wheat in the barns, you have burning up the chaff, you have unquenchable fire. And this unquenchable fire, this is, unless you dig in, you're going to miss this text which is being talked about here. So there is an agrarian society. And I don't know if you guys know anything about growing and harvesting wheat. And first, you've got to prepare the soil, and you put the seed in the soil. Now, remember, if you, uh, if you recall the uh, parable of the sower of the seed, 
it's really more of a parable about the soils. But the seed is thrown onto the path and it's thrown onto the rocky ground and it's thrown into a place where weeds come up and choke it as it comes up. And then you have the final seeds that are planted in the furrowed ground, the, the ground that has been tilled. And that produces fruit 30, 60, and 100 times that which has been sown. And so he's talking again to an agrarian society and he's talking about harvesting wheat. And almost all of them would have harvested wheat. And so when he says, using this imagery, that he is going to thresh the wheat. Now, if you've ever seen somebody thresh wheat, there's different ways to do it. If you go to the Amish, they have this foot pedal machine. And they turn this foot pedal machine and they grab the heads of grain on the stalks and they stick the grain in there and this thing turns around and it has little uh, knobbies on it and little spikes and it knocks off all of the seed. And the seed falls through this little grate and into this pan and out into a bucket. That's one way to thresh it. Another way is they have this stick, which is about five feet long. And on the end of the stick, they have a little metal hook. Now, you could use leather or something like that, where it is not firmly connected, where it just wobbles. And you connect another stick to that, which is about three feet long. And you take that stick, the five-foot section, and you whip it around like this. You just hold it, and you could see that stick on the outside. Somebody smacks you with that thing, kind of like a nunchuck. You know, if you took a nunchuck and smack, you smack yourself in the head. Well, this one, it's bigger, about five feet and about three feet. So a guy's holding this thing and it goes whack right onto the wheat. And it's, there's a pile of wheat down there. So this guy just whack, whack, whack. And he's going, oh, and he's going to thresh the wheat. Who's the wheat? It's them. And later in an expansive sense, It's the world. So he comes to thresh the wheat and he's whacking that wheat over and over and over. And it separates the grain and it goes down through the stalks of wheat to the bottom of the pile. And then they take a winnowing fork. This winnowing fork usually is made out of sticks as well, of branches of a tree. Sometimes it'd have three or four tongs on it. And they would take it and they would get the chaff and they'd throw it up, the stalks and the chaff, and they'd throw it up in the air a little bit so the seed would fall down underneath into its own pile. So that chaff is the unbeliever. The unbeliever is being separated from the seed and what's done with the chaff. The chaff is then taken and bundled up and thrown into the fire. Now, this is John the Baptist. We are not in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and Luke chapter 21 and Mark chapter 13 in the book of Revelation or Daniel chapter 9 through chapter 12 or Ezekiel chapter 38. He's saying there is a judgment to come and this is how it's going to happen. People are going to be hit with this threshing stick. They're going to be separated from those who are the wheat, who are the seed. That seed is going to be collected. And here it uses the word barns, but it's not a barn. It's like a silo. It's like a granary. It would be this area where they would have bricks going around. It would be round. It would have a cover on it. And they would throw the grain into the granary. The rest of it would be thrown into an area that had unquenchable fire. Now, this unquenchable fire, we don't know what that means. I'll tell you right now, you think, well, it doesn't go out. Well, yeah, That's true, it doesn't go out. Let me tell you a little bit about the history, the etymology of this particular word. Uh, 
This word, unquenchable, is asbestos. And you go, asbestos? Yeah, that's the actual Greek word, asbestos, where we get our word asbestos. Well, what is asbestos? Asbestos is a non-combustible material, and this is unquenchable fire. How do you get non-combustible and unquenchable? I was waiting for you to ask. This is how it actually happened. Back in the time, uh, it's Caius um, Pliny Segundus. He lived at the time of Jesus Christ till about 79 AD. He was alive during that time. And he took this word asbestos and he misused it. He misused it in some of his writings to refer to that which is not combustible instead of unquenchable. He misunderstood the use of the word. And that non-combustible material would refer to a burial cloth for somebody who was royalty that was to be cremated. They would wrap the body in the cloth and they would cremate the person to where the person would be totally consumed, but the cloth would not. And so he misunderstood the use of the term. And it was asbestos or something like that in the Greek, but for us, it's asbestos, which is unquenchable. Now, what is asbestos? If you look it up, it is really referring to quicklime. Now, those of you who have worked with concrete, you know what quicklime is. You add it to concrete so that it aids in the curing process. The only problem with quicklime is it is highly alkaline. Now, highly alkaline and highly acidic. If it was highly acidic, it'd be like at zero, right? And that would be an acid an acid of some kind like sulfuric acid. By the way, do you guys know what the, the worst acid which is out there? It is just a terrible acid. It is not good. Do you guys know what it is? Amino acid. Amino acid. Amino acid. Okay, I'm going on. So anyhow, you have, you have acid. And it is not acid. It is highly alkaline on a scale from 0 to 14, 14 being highly alkaline, 0 being highly acidic. We're kind of right in the middle. Milk is like 5 or 6 right in the middle. But if you go to 14, way up in 14, that's drain cleaner. You know what drain cleaner is? Drain-o, you throw that down. You know what else is up in that scale? A wasp sting. You get stung by a wasp. Do you think it's going to feel good? It is going to burn like there is no tomorrow. Those big old large wasps that are out there. Sometimes you'll see the nests up in the eve. So this is the term quickline, which is asbestos, which causes burning. Oh, so he says unquenchable fire causes burning, but not just any kind of burning. They would have understood what was being said with asbestos when it was written, when it was said by John, unquenchable fire. Interestingly enough, the word from the time of Pliny and to today has been used a non-combustible. But back then, when they were listening to John, they would say, no, this is unquenchable. And how is it unquenchable? Well, you use this quick line. If you work with concrete and you want to look up on the internet, uh, quick line, 
and the damage that quicklime can do, there are severe burns with people who work in concrete that have a severe reaction to concrete. The cement is actually what is in there. And it is calcium oxide is what it is called. They take lime or limestone. Uh, they, they take that out. They crush it. They sift it. And then they burn it. And when they burn it, it is unstable. It reacts with CO2, carbon dioxide in the air. I'm getting somewhere. Just bear with me here. So it's in the air. It can react with that. But when you mix it with water, it becomes calcium hydroxide. And calcium hydroxide is what will actually burn you. And if you look up for pictures of calcium uh, quicklime burning, you will see blisters. You will see scars of these concrete workers who have worked with this quicklime. Now, one thing about this quicklime, they did this study. This guy named E.M. Schatzman, he did this study in 2012, the effects of quicklime on the human body when decaying, because they would bury people with quicklime. Why would they bury people with quicklime? And believe me, the people in John the Baptist's time, they knew this already. We don't know this stuff. I didn't know this stuff. I looked it up and go, oh, it makes so much sense. So they'd take this quicklime, they'd bury a body, they'd throw lime in there, quicklime, and then they'd bury the body, especially if it couldn't put it deep. And the reason they did that is it stopped decomposition. And it burned, and it kind of kept the body just it was supposed to be, like the flesh would burn on it, but the rest of the body would be preserved, and it wouldn't putrefy. It would remain stable. So in 2012, this E.M. Schatzman, he did this experiment. He wanted to see the effects, because some people say, oh, if you just cover it and quicklime, the body will burn up. Well, it doesn't burn up, but he did this experiment where he took Two pigs, one control, one dependent. He put the control in it, just buried the pig. Six months later, he dug it up. When he dug up this pig, six months later, it was pretty bad. I mean, it was decomposed. It was smelly. It was all of those things. He goes, okay, that's the control. And he went over to the dependent one, dependent on the, the quick line being in there. And he looked at it and he goes, you know, it was remarkably preserved. The top layer kind of burned, but there was no rotting. There was no smell. It was not bad at all. And by the way, this was used in England, in Europe, during the bubonic plague. Twice they had plagues go through there. And what they would do, since so many people were dying, tens of thousands of people were dying, they would throw them in shallow graves and they'd cover them with quicklime so that the disease would not continue to be rampant everywhere else. And so when he dug up this pig and it was being preserved in the ground and all of a sudden you take that information, the quick line that the people back in John the Baptist time would have understood when he said unquenchable fire, asbestos, it means it would have burned unendingly and you would be preserved. Do you get it? They would have understood that the punishment that is going to come is going to be forever, and you're not going to be consumed. This is in keeping with Matthew chapter 25, 46, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, life everlasting and punishment everlasting. 
this was given to the Jews before Jesus ever came onto the scene, that there is a judgment coming. And that's why I said, it's not Daniel chapter 9 through 12. It's not Ezekiel 38 through 40. It is not Revelation. It is not Thessalonians, the wrath to come. It is not the prophecy in the future that is in the Gospels. He was telling them there is a judgment to come and it's punishment and it is everlasting. And he was spelling it out for them. That's why they kind of looked at him. So what are we supposed to do? How do we get out of this? And isn't that the answer for the all ages? If you can answer that, what are we supposed to do? You know, if you look at the world, the world is broken. I mean, anybody, even an atheist would say something's wrong, especially after this shooting. How do things like that happen? This is just wrong. Well, when you read the Bible, one of the themes of the Bible is it's a commentary on reality, how things actually are. And the other religions out there do not explain the world and how it exists as it actually is. God tells us about creation. Some people have a hard time believing that God created it in six days. But it is how it actually was. The scientists are now even saying, it's the Big Bang, right? Well, that's really what scripture says. It was a big explosion or an expanse that went out. How fast did it go out? Faster than you can actually believe. Way faster than the speed of light. All those planets and galaxies and everything that are out there, God put it out there in an instant. An instant quicker than anything you can even imagine. That's reality. That's what happened. And the scientists are slowly confirming. Remember, uh, I mentioned this a few months ago, Michio Kaku, that uh, physicist, that astrophysicist which is out there. Uh, He talked about, well, maybe it's, God. Maybe there was nothing there. And it's believed he's kind of come around. He's come to the point where it has to come from an intelligent being. And also this view of reality, we know what's coming in the future. And John is telling them what's coming in the future. It's this judgment. But the Lord has given us his word to make sure we know how to escape the judgment. You know, you have creation, you have the fall, you have redemption, and then you have the restoration. That's a common theme, not only in the Bible, but in all movies and books which are out there. If it's not, it's a tragedy like in Shakespeare, right? And so God has given to us, through John the Baptist, what is going to take place. He adds to the axes at the tree by the winnowing fork and the threshing floor. What is the threshing floor? That's where God sends his angels and they gather up all those who do not believe. And this is a concomitant with what we'll get to in Matthew. It talks about the weeds and the wheat. You gather up the weeds first, and those go to judgment in fire, and then you gather up the wheat and you place it in the barn. That is God getting those who are his and bringing them to heaven or into his kingdom, so to speak. So that's what's taking place inside of the confines of that little not pericope, that little imagery setting that is given to us there. So we have the harvest, we have the thresh, we have the winnowing floor, or the winnowing, uh, we have the threshing floor, we have the burning of the chaff and the unquenchable fire. Then we get to the baptism of Jesus in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so for now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. 
Then John consented. Now John's resistance to the baptizing of Jesus is a testimony to the sinlessness of Christ. He doesn't have to prepare for anything. He doesn't have to repent of anything. And so the question naturally comes up, well, what's the purpose of the baptism of John, the baptism of Jesus, and the baptism for us? How, how do you divide those things? Jesus' baptism wasn't the same as for us, but there is meaning which is behind it. So John's baptism, it was a baptism of repentance. It was for recognition of sins, that you're saying, okay, I'm getting baptized and I need this cleansing even though it's on the outside and this cleansing on the inside. But this will symbolize it as I go into the water and I get washed. So this recognition of sins, which leads to the second thing, a desire for cleansing internally. So you have the recognitions of sins that you need to do something for it and that you need to be cleansed. And John says, well, this will prepare you for the coming Messiah. That is what the text tells us. And then... There's this commitment to follow the law in anticipation of the coming Messiah. Now, that's not why we get baptized. We are not anticipating the Messiah coming. The Messiah has already come. And we don't get baptized anticipating his second coming, although there is an element to that with the resurrection. So Christian baptism, number one, it's an act of obedience. If we're not getting baptized... We're being disobedient. I mean, there's no two ways about it. And some people put it off. And then on the other extreme, some people say, well, you have to go through all these classes before you get baptized. After all, you have to learn what you're doing. And, you know, when you go through the book of Acts and you see baptism taking place there, whether it's with uh, in John, or excuse me, Acts chapter 10 and 11 that deals with Cornelius and Peter or when it gets to uh, Acts chapter 19 and it deals with these men, 12 and all, who were in Ephesus. They had received the baptism of John, but they had not been baptized. And all of that is taking place. You know, that, that baptism crossover was evident there. They were simply being obedient and it happened right after they accepted Christ. They didn't have to go through some type of study. This is what you're doing when you get baptized. No, you accept Christ. Are you a theologian when you accept Christ? I really had no concept that Jesus was God in human form when I accepted Christ. I just know I didn't want to go to hell and the earth is going to end. And I need to accept Christ to escape that, to escape that. And so I, okay, yeah, I'm in, both hands, I'm in, both hands. I, I want to accept Christ. I want to avoid this judgment to come. But it was a two-pronged, uh, double-sided thing for me. It was, I didn't want the pain of torture and punishment. And on the other hand, I responded to the love of Christ. I saw what he did for us. I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And I got baptized at my first opportunity. After that, I became a disciple. I go, okay. This is what I need to do in becoming a disciple. So if we accept Christ, get baptized, and go on to being a disciple. That's the order. Don't kind of go on to being a disciple. I'll put off baptism until later. No, do it now. Today is the day of baptism. Like, today is the day of salvation. So Christian baptism, number one, it's an act of obedience to Jesus, who is the Christ. It represents our death to sin, our being buried, and are being resurrected. That's what it represents. We're identifying with Jesus, who was crucified, died, was buried, and he came out again. 
We do that through water. He did that through the cross and the tomb and the tomb opening up. It even states this in scripture. You can just write this down. Romans chapter 3 or 6 verse 3 and Romans chapter 6 verse 44. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 it says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And also Romans 6.44, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So our baptism is a baptism unto death. It is not a baptism unto repentance. We have already repented. And so that's the difference between John's baptism and our baptism. Now, what about Jesus himself? Why was Jesus baptized? Well, I, I think that there are three reasons for this. The first one is to identify with sinners, although he was not a sinner. If you look at Jesus in his life, the way that he grew up, and I try to, whenever I talk about the birth narrative and Christmas and Easter and all of that, I try to bring back our thinking as to what it must have been like for the days of Jesus. When he grew up, he came as a baby. He cried. He probably said no to Mary. I don't know if he had to be spanked because there is a time where uh, we don't know right from wrong, right? And so Jesus growing up, not knowing right from wrong, God holds those who are small, innocent. They, they just don't know. We look at little kids that fly off the handle, they do something wrong, and they just don't know. And so we can be gentle with them. We can understand why they're doing what they're doing. They have no concept of right and wrong. They are just dealing with their lives in general. Jesus had runny nose. He had a cold. He, he was whiny. You know, he just wouldn't stop crying. By the way, as a side note, did you see that uh, flight from AT Double Toothpicks? The person that was on the flight for eight hours of a kid who was called a demon kid. It was a flight from hell is what they called it because he screamed for eight hours on the plane. Did you see that? Oh, I saw some of the videos. Oh, that would, that would have just, give me my headphones, my Bose headphones to knock out this sound. And so Jesus, <clears throat> he, there would have been times where he was cranky, cranky baby. You're going to go to your bed and you're going to cry until you go to sleep. That's Jesus. Did, did Jesus get some owies? Owie. Did he get some owies? Probably, yes, he got owies. Did he grow up? Was he a little toddler? Was he just, why? You'd go to Joseph. Why? Why? Why do you do that? Why, mommy? Why? You ever get that from little two-year-olds? And going on. You know, little foolish children. The rod of correction will drive that foolishness far from them. Was Jesus his perfect child? He always did what was exactly right. He was always obedient to his mother and father. We don't know, but he was human. And does God account to him, not sin, he did not sin, but this innocence in making errors, did he say, oh, that's sin? I don't think so. Matter of fact, Scripture would say no. But he was a normal little boy. He would grow up. If they had stickball, they would have played stickball. He was out there playing with his kids, or his kids, his brothers, his siblings, his sisters, which would have been out there. And he learned how to hammer. 
He learned how to make a dowel. He learned how to do that. He worked. He was a carpenter. You know, so we look at Jesus and he wanted to identify with us. That's why he became one of us. Everything that we are tempted with, he was tempted with. There is no difference. He didn't walk around with his halo all day wearing a white wool covering all the time. And everybody said, oh, there's God in human. Now, nobody did that. He was a man. And he was not handsome. You know, he, he was not this looker. He was not in a magazine. We know that according to the book of Isaiah. And so all of these, he was normal. He was average. He was just like everybody else, and that's what he experienced. And he wanted everybody to know that he identifies with him or with them. And so he got baptized. That is the reason. And in John chapter 1, verse 29... It talks about the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when he said, a man who comes after me, he has surpassed me because he was before me. Myself, I did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Not even John, his cousin, knew that he was the Messiah. He was his cousin, his first cousin. Maybe second cousin, but probably first cousin. Yeah, he's my cousin. So what? He shows up, and apparently there's something going on where he then recognizes, before he gets baptized, that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And this is the second reason. He wanted to identify who he was. The first one was to identify with sinners, although he was not a sinner. And secondly, to identify who he was, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at that time, something else took place. In verse 17 of Matthew, chapter we're in here, it says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my son who I love. With him I am well pleased. So all these people are standing around. There's either hundreds or thousands of people there. Jesus shows up, wants to be baptized. John says, I have need to be baptized by you. And so John baptizes him at the, be- the uh, behest of Jesus. And he goes, okay, I'm just going to do this because Jesus asks me to do this. And then John makes witness to who he is because the sign that was given to him to watch out for was the Holy Spirit resting upon him like a dove. Heaven opened up, the Holy Spirit came down and rested on him. We don't know if the whole crowd saw that. We don't know if it was just John who saw that. But then everybody heard the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now, if you were standing in the crowd, there's no such thing as a speaker, a Bose speaker. He did not have the acoustics there and set up with a microphone, and he was not talking to the people through a mic system. It just simply happened. Now, I'm going to go back to this in a minute. The third reason was to identify the way. The way... To life is through death. Now you tell that to somebody who does not know the context of Scripture. The way you're going to live is to die. They're going to go, what are you talking about? In order for me to live, I have to die. That makes no sense whatsoever. And you're right. Somebody in the world, they hear that. It doesn't make any sense to them whatsoever. So they need the context of what's going on with the whole of Scripture. If you tell that to somebody who is an unbeliever, they're just going to, 
Oh, come on. You need to be saved. You need to get baptized and go into death, burial, and resurrection just like him. Maranatha, brother, Hosanna. What are you talking about? They don't get it. So we have to learn to communicate to them properly. But Jesus is showing the way through the death, burial, and resurrection. That's how we get our new life. This body is under judgment. Those who do not believe in God are going to go under wrath. And we can get a new body. We can get a new life. And we can live forever. That's the theme that surrounds all of this. But let me digress. So this idea to identify Jesus who he was. Why didn't Jesus show up in a day and time where the iPhone was around? Where you could have recorded the event. Where you take out your iPhone or, as I prefer, an Android. And you hold the Android up and you take video and sound and record it. And when you record it, you save it to a travel drive. And you put it, why didn't Jesus show up when that stuff was around? Well, the same reason that we do not have any of the original autographs that were penned by the apostles like Paul or by Luke. We don't have the originals, that the actual letters that they would have written. We don't have those for the same reason. Imagine what we would have done if we had the recording of God the Father speaking from heaven. Would you consider that precious? We would have made a church and a shrine around it. People would have crawled on their knees being all bloody just to hear the voice of God. And we would have charged for it. We would have said, it's going to cost you a lot to hear the voice of God. You got the money? Sorry. You can't hear God's voice. That's exactly what we would have done. With that, Same thing with the autographs. What would we have done with the original writings of Paul and of John and of Peter, who has probably uh, had his, Mark, his secretary, write these things out? What would we have done with We would have idolized those. That's why we don't have them. That's why Jesus showed up when, we, when he did. You know, what have we done to the Shroud of Turin? What if it is the burial cloth of Christ? Well, we treat it like it is. It's, don't touch it. It's, you can, oh, you want to take some? You can only take a millimeter of that material and test it. That's it. I'm not letting you have any more. This is a relic. We've got to make sure that we just venerate this thing. What have we done? The same thing happened in the Old Testament with Moses. Remember the Israelites were disobedient and they were being bitten by snakes. There's a plague of snakes which was out there. And so he, he was instructed by God, put this post up and put the snake around it and stick it up in the air. And when the people look upon it, if they have been bitten, they will not die. And of course, that is the symbol that we use for the medical industry. It is actually a little uh, post which sticks up and it has two snakes on it. Originally, it was just one snake that would be on it. Guess what the people did with it? They made it into an idol where people would go up and they had offer sacrifices there and they had bowed down to it and they were worshiping this stupid thing. It's, it's just a pole with a snake on it. It doesn't have the power. It's God's power that was surrounding this thing. And so what did King Hezekiah do? He broke it. He burned it. <clears throat> he destroyed it. Now those people who had that thing as an idol, they would have been weeping sackcloth and ashes, throwing it over their heads saying, woe is us. We have lost this precious relic. And we do that. 
And so Jesus, in his baptism, we know why it wasn't recorded. We know why we don't have a video of it. We would have idolized that. But in the three things that Jesus wanted to communicate in his baptism, wanted to identify with sinners, wanted to reveal to the world who he was, and God the Father wanted to do that as well. It's one of the two times that he actually, well, there could be more times in Scripture, but with Jesus, you know, is at his crucifixion and here at the baptism and God spoke God the father spoke and the people heard this and so this idea that God we would not record this thing and I have to double check on that resurrection when I have to look up where it is I'm just doing that off the cuff but the identifying with sinners identifying who he was and identifying the way that is the purpose of Jesus's baptism that's why he went to the cross and this is where the Spirit of God landed on him. Now the... Okay, I was going to go back into repentance, but I'm just going to go on to that. Now, we're going to be getting into next week the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism with fire. And these things are also listed here. And what is the purpose of the baptism of the Spirit and what is the purpose of the baptism of fire? And so when we look at the Scripture... We want to make sure we take time, we look at the individual words, we look at the imagery which is there, if there's an allegory there, if there's a metaphor there, if there's a simile or similitude there, we want to look at that, we want to dissect it, we want to parse it to understand what is going on. We have the words of life. And if we understand the words of life, we can give it to others. We need to be sharp as a tack, not sharp as a marble. When somebody asks us a question, We need to be able to give a pointed, lucid, coherent response to anybody who would be looking for or seeking after God or somebody who proclaims that they are religious. And we need to give them the proper word of God, not a word that would be similar to, well, in Matthew chapter 3, he's talking about cutting down trees and harvesting wheat. Obviously, he wants us to cut down the trees and plant wheat and harvest. That's God's message to us. And you might snicker a little bit, but that's the type of application people get from Scripture. A couple more things to illustrate this. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, men are not to have their head covered. No hats. And women, we need to sew some doilies and put them on your head. Because your hair is supposed to be, or your head is supposed to be covered. That's a misinterpretation of the scripture which is there. Or in Ecclesiastes, wine makes life merry and money is the answer for everything. (laughs) All we need is alcohol and money and everything is just fine. See, that's the misinterpretation that is there. So I exhort you this morning, as you get into God's word, and Lord willing, you're in his word, you're dividing it. You're looking at it. You're getting the meaning of the words which are there like asbestos. And you're not misinterpreting because you hold in your hand the very words of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the riches that are there. We ask that you would enlighten us, expand, Lord, our understanding. May we not just take a cursory look at the information which is before us but help us to mine it as those who mine for gold 
may provide for us, Lord, nuggets that sustain us and motivate us. In Jesus' name, amen.